World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the AmeriChicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks radio show. This is my World War II Project, and I'm Kim Munson. And uh, thrilled to have you join me today. Uh, today we will be talking with World War II veteran Andy Lipscomb. And he was at Battle of the Bulge. And it is just a thrill to have you on the line with me, Andy. How are you doing? Pretty good. Okay, great. And this show precipitated from a trip that I took in 2016 uh, that took a group of D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations. And when we returned, we realized how important it is to capture these stories. And each World War II veteran has their own individual story. So, Andy, let's go ahead and jump in here. Uh, tell us just a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Right here in Alta, West Virginia. Okay. And how old are you? I am 93 plus. 93 plus. And, uh, yeah, for seven months. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, where were you? Do, do you recall where you were when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? Yes, I know where I was. And where was that? I was in school. And at the time, I was, no, I was out of school. And I heard it on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I was still 15 years old at the time, and I thought, well, war will be over with before I have to go. But uh, that didn't prove out. No, that didn't prove out, did it? <laughs> because the year that I was a senior, and that was the only year in 1944, that if you were born after December 1st, you got to stay and graduate. If you was born before, any time before December 1st, you had to go right then at 18 instead of 20. In 1941, they was only drafting them of 20 age, 20 years of age, then they wasn't getting enough, so they dropped it to 19. Then in 1944, they dropped it to 18. Wow, I did not know that. So I got to stay and graduate, but right after graduation, I was on the way. Okay, so you graduated when? In 1944. Okay, and at the end of May? Yeah. Okay, okay. So that would have been right before D-Day. So uh, when did you, uh, when were you drafted? When did you go into the service exactly then? I don't remember the exact date that I graduated, but I was inducted into the service on... June the 24th, 1944, at Fort Benjamin Harrison, Indiana. Okay. From there, rode a troop train to Camp Landing, Florida, for 17 weeks of infantry training. 
then I got one week at home and reported to Fort Meade, Maryland. From there, I went to Camp Miles Standish, Massachusetts. From there, went to Boston and boarded a troop ship, the USAT George Washington, which used to be a luxury liner George Washington. And it was a fast ship. So we didn't have no escort. We went by ourselves. And, of course, Dodge submarines and so forth went to England. And from England, across the English Channel, to La Havre, and from there, got on a troop train and went part the way to Belgium somewhere and then got into trucks and joined the 4th Armored Division on the way into the bulge. Okay. So, now, what else do you want to know? Well, uh, so that would have, with the, when you uh, met up with the 4th Armored Division, that was that in December then of 44? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so let's... Go, I, I, joined them, I joined them on December 19th. And at that point in time, uh, our guys were pinned down at Bastogne, is that right? Our, our guys were surrounded at Bastogne at that time? Oh, yeah. 101st Airborne was surrounded in Bastogne. And, of course, there's a lot of fighting to be done before before we got there. So tell us a little bit about, first of all, your training, Andy. Uh, you had 17 weeks of training, and uh, I had uh, written down that you were part of a tank battalion, correct? I was in the Armored Infantry, okay. 53rd Armored Infantry C Company of the 4th Armored Division, and usually was always with C Company of the 37th Bank Battalion. Okay. Now, you know what? I don't know that I, I've interviewed anyone that was part of the Armored Division. So let's go back to your training, your 17 weeks of training. What was that like, Andy? Uh, awful hot in Florida in the summertime. And I bet a tank is pretty hot as well, huh? Yeah. How many yeah. how many people in a how many soldiers in a tank? Ordinarily five. Okay. In a tank. And what was the different jobs that they did? Well, you had a driver, a gunner, and also I I don't know exactly what all they did. He had a loader to load the gun. Okay. And then a gunner to shoot it. Okay. That is the bigger gun, and then it had two thirty caliber machine guns on it. Okay. That of course had to be operated. Tank commander I don't think he did much for anything, only tell us them what to do. <laughs> that's pro- that's probably true. So uh, it was pretty tight quarters in there, wasn't it? Yes, there wasn't much room in a, a Sherman tank. Okay. And what was the training like uh, during those 17 weeks then, like uh, going over different terrain, 
uh, you know, what were things that you learned? Well, you had to you had to qualify for M1 rifle. You had to qualify for hand grenade. Qualify for bazooka and uh, machine gun. Of course, a lot of you did a lot of marching after the end of the end of your seventeen weeks. Right at the end of it. You had to go on a 25-mile forced march that you uh, ran or fast-walked or ran for, I think, 10 minutes and then walked for 10 minutes and then took a smoke break if you smoked. <laughs> <laughs> that was back in the day, huh? <laughs> yeah, then kept right on going till you got your 25 miles. Okay. And we ended up in a forest, ended up in a forest, uh, and a hurricane hit. They told us to dig in. So we dug holes. Well, when the hurricane hit, of course, it had a lot of water with it, and the hole filled up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to so, get... And the reason for the digging in was if the trees fell, they wouldn't fall on you. But shortly after that, they sent truck saffers, and we didn't have to do 25 mile back. We rode back. Well, I think if you go through a hurricane, I think that's a pretty good idea, Andy. Yeah. That is really fascinating. So uh, anything else you want to tell us about your training? Well, not much else to tell about it, except when you was in camp, they had outside bars that you could drink a little beer at night. <laughs> After uh, all your training, that was probably a welcome thing to do. Uh, so you said that yeah. you had a week before you uh, then were deployed. Uh, what was it like back home? Did you have any other siblings that were serving uh, in in the military, what was it like to say goodbye to everybody? I had a brother and two sisters, and they were younger than me. Okay. But then when the Korean War came along, my brother was in the Korean War. My dad had been in World War One. Wow. He had a piece of shrapnel in his eye, and he was blind in that eye, and they wanted to remove it. But he wouldn't let them do it, and at the age of, I don't know what age he really was when he first got in trouble, probably 37 or 8, and uh, he got cancer in that eye, and at age 40, he died. Oh, gosh, Andy, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's uh, pretty young. So Yeah. Okay, let's talk just a little bit more in this particular segment. Uh, what did you, what, when did you hear about D-Day? What did you, when did you hear about it, and what did you hear about D-Day? About D-Day. Yes. So you would have been out of high school by then, right? Probably just graduated from high school when D-Day occurred. Yeah. And what did you hear about that? Well, I heard it on the radio. We, we had a, a radio at that time, but it was we didn't have electric. Oh. It was battery powered. But it was on the radio, and we only got to listen to the radio a couple hours of the night. 
<laughs> it's boy, it's different today, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Did you hear that D-Day was a success? Did you hear about you know there were significant losses? Uh, what what were you what were the reports? Well, mainly a lot of them was not making it. A lot of them getting killed, and wounded. But uh, I don't know when uh, when I heard it was a success. It wasn't that day. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, you've heard about D Day, and you are now in the service. You've done your your training. You've uh, gotten over to Europe. And anything else before we start to talk about Battle of the Bulge? And we'll start to talk about Battle of the Bulge in the next segment. Anything else regarding all of that that you'd like our listeners to to know? Well, when we went into that, when I went in and the guys with me, we wore the same boots that we wore in training. We never got new boots. We never got overshoes. We didn't get overcoats. And that winter was the coldest winter on record. Right. Now, why didn't you guys get that? Because now my understanding was like the guys pinned down at Battle of the Bulge, you know, they had not anticipated uh, that the winter was going to be that bad. They couldn't get supplies to them. But why didn't you guys have the proper equipment? Well, they said, they told us and in Camp Miles Standish, we would get our winter clothes in England. But when we got to England, they didn't have them. Of course, we went from there with what we had on. So did any of the guys that you know get frostbite? Oh, yeah. Frostbite? Yes. Trench foot. I had trench foot, and there was 15,000 or more that had trench foot. After time that I got it. And what is trench foot exactly? Trench foot is a condition of your feet. Uh, it comes from being cold and wet. Oh, man. And it deadens the nerves in your feet. And uh, if you don't get it taken care of, you can lose your feet. Wow. They just turn black. So, so you recovered but, from that? Yeah. Okay. But they caught mine early enough that there was no no space in any hospitals on the continent over there, and they flew a, tr- a plane load of us to England. Okay. And uh, I was in the hospital in England till the day before the war ended. Okay. And. The next day when the war ended, they really had a celebration in London. Oh, I, I want to hear about that. Let's, uh, let's go to break. I'm ta- this is Kim Munson with the Americhix World War II Project, and I'm talking with World War II veteran Andy Lipscomb, and uh, he was in the Armored Division, the 4th Armored Division. Uh, so we're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, uh, it's rocky season, and Hooters Restaurants is the spot to be this summer. Uh, Enjoy Hooters Beach-worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help cool you down this summer. Some additional happenings at Hooters is they have nine items for $9, 11 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. 
You can choose from nine delicious menu items such as fish and sh- uh, shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and of course, their fabulous boneless wings. So get in to dine in. You can get it to go or you can have it del- delivered right to your front door. For more information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com and let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. And we will be right back with World War II veteran Andy Lipscomb. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project. I am thrilled to be talking with Andy Lipscomb. He is a World War II veteran, and he uh, served at Battle of the Bulge. And he has a lot of medals, uh, and we'll talk about those here in just a moment. But, Andy, it is just really great to have you on the line with me today. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, Andy, let's talk a bit about uh, your, you were in uh, a tank battalion, and uh, you you knew that the 101st Airborne was uh, surrounded uh, at Bastogne. And, of course, as many of my listeners know, the Battle of the Bulge, they call, the, call it the Battle of the Bulge because in December, this was a last-ditch effort by Hitler to uh, push the Allies, push the Americans back. And uh, so they, they came in, and it actually was a, a bulge in the line. And the 101st Airborne got surrounded at Bastogne. And the weather was just awful, wasn't it, Andy? It was, yeah. And uh, and you couldn't get supplies into the guys there at Bastogne. And so tell us about, you know, what were you hearing about the 101st Airborne? What were you hearing from Bastogne? Well, personally, uh, private didn't hear very much. <laughs> okay. Okay. But... <laughs> So when did you, I, I mean, what was this like? You're now over in Europe. How how did it happen that you guys ended up being the guys to go in and uh, help rescue the 101st at Bastogne? Well, to start with, the 4th Armored Division was located partly in Luxembourg and in that area, and they had them. Patton said he would be in Bastogne by Christmas Day, but they had to travel, I think it was 80-some miles to get there with their tanks and the half-tracks. And you know what a half-track is? I don't. What is it? <laughs> well, it's a truck with front wheels front tires on it, and the rear of it has tracks on it like a tank. Okay. And that's what the infantry rode in when they rode. Of course, there was times that they didn't ride, but that's what the half-track is for. Okay. And uh, incidentally, the uh, driver of the half-track that I was on, I didn't know at the time for a while, he lived about eight miles from me here in Terra Alta. Oh, my gosh. When, <laughs> when did you find that out? Oh, I don't know, probably a month later. Okay. So, Andy, as you were making your way towards Bastogne, were you afraid at all? Well, at times. What did you, yeah. what did you do when you uh, were afraid? Well, I usually didn't smoke, but I smoked cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> you had to take your mind off. Okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, you are, w- when you guys start towards Bestone, 
what orders did you get? What did you hear from your commanders? Well, we had to... It would take me forever to tell you all about that. But uh, C Company of the 37th Tank Battalion and C Company of the Armored Infantry was in reserve. A and B Companies of the 37th Tank and the Armored Infantry was in heavy fighting. I can't tell you what towns offhand that they were fighting, but eventually the ones in reserve took a swing to the left where there wasn't many towns, but they had two main towns to take. One was Athenoise, that was the last big one, and the other one was Shimont or something like that. Okay. It was the first one you came to. Then you had to take Asinois. And um, they had already, of course, at the time, I didn't know, it, know that, but I uh, learned later that the artillery was to hit the town first. Okay. So when the artillery started hitting the town, of course, that put the German troops in the basements of the houses. Mm-hmm. And then the art- after the artillery had fired so much, they were to stop, and the tanks and the infantry would proceed up to that point, and then the artillery would start again. And uh, that worked all right because we didn't run on to any fire from the Germans until we got close to the end of the town. And the artillery was still firing, and they didn't stop when they were supposed to. Or, and one half track got hit. Then when we dismounted, then some of the Germans began coming out. But A and B Company was following us to clear the town out. And we got through all right. Didn't lose only, uh, I think, three or four men on that half track got hit. Then after that, I could send you uh, some information on that if you want it. Yeah, I would be interested in that. Let's continue on, though, with this. You said that you guys got through okay. What about A and B? How did how did it work for them? They took the town okay. after we already went through it. Okay. And again, was it was bitterly cold, correct? It was yes, it was cold. So cold. Yes. Oh, and, you know, just another question. Were those tanks warm at all with those guys in there, or were, was it cold in there also? It was not as cold as it was on the outside because they would get a little heat from the motor. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe they had a heater in them. I'm not sure. Okay. And what about, tell me what your day was like. So were you guys camping outside? I mean, where did you sleep? Dig a hole in the ground. Foxhole. And with it so cold, I mean, wasn't that pretty difficult to do? It was pretty hard to dig because the ground was frozen, I don't know how far down, a foot or more times. I just want to... It was hard hard digging a foxhole. Yeah, I just want to set this up just a little bit, Andy, so that people really understand this. You are an 18-year-old kid from West Virginia. You're across the big blue ocean over on the European continent, 
in one of the coldest winters uh, on record. You guys don't have the proper equipment. You didn't get new boots. You didn't have any overshoes. You didn't have any overcoats. And you're sleeping in holes that you try to dig in frozen ground. There is a reason why we call you guys the greatest generation. You know it? Possibly so, yeah. Yeah, possibly so is is right. So if you, go ahead. you cover up with a covered up with a blanket and get three or four inches of snow on top of it, that kind of insulated it and it was warmer underground than it was outside. That's absolutely astonishing to me. Okay, so uh, when you guys are headed towards Bastogne, fighting your way through, uh, and, you know, Patton, my understanding, Patton, uh, the supply guys got frustrated with Patton because he moved so quickly that he got out ahead of the supply lines. What's your comments on that? Well, the tanks, if I can find it here, yeah, I've, I've got some information that is available on the internet. Okay. Where can I find it? I'll do that right now. Well, I don't know how you do find it. <laughs> really? Okay. There was a guy from over Netherlands sent me this information, and he, I know that's where he got it from. Okay. I'll check on that. I'll check on that. So let's con- continue on then, uh, Andy. You are, are going to try to, to help the 101st Airborne that's surrounded at Bastogne. Uh, yeah. And so you're fighting your way, you know, through the different towns. So when did you get to a point where you broke through at Bastogne? On December 26th. Okay. And what did you find when you got to Bastogne? A lot of happy soldiers. <laughs> I bet that you did. <laughs> and what, you know, what what did you see other than that? I mean, were they hungry? Um you know, they didn't have the proper equipment. Tell us a little bit about the soldiers there of the 101st Airborne. Well, I'll tell you what happened before we got there. Okay. There was three German soldiers approached the 101st Airborne lines under a white flag with a note from the German commander for them to surrender or be annihilated. And General McAfee was was the commander there, and he said to his, uh, the guy that's always with him, subordinate or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. he said, all nuts. <laughs> and he said, then he said, what do you think I ought to tell him? And the other guy said, well, what you just said would be fine. So he just wrote nuts on, all nuts on the note and sent it back. And... Uh, of course, they handed it to the German commander, and he said, oh, nuts. He said to one of his men, he said, what does that mean? He said in English, that means you go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so they, they held it. The 101st Airborne held Bastogne until you guys got there. And you said right. they were really, really glad to see you. Um what else about Bastogne uh, can you remember? Well, I remembered the second night that I was in there that we were sleeping in the basement of a building that got hit by a bomb, and we was trapped in that basement. And uh, there was uh, 
Roscoe Mulvey from Pennsylvania was there. He was in charge of the mortar squad. They was the ones that dug us out. But that's where I lost most of my hearing, was from the concussion off that bomb. I bet. I bet. Now, did, at this point in time, did you also ha- have trench foot at that, once you got to Bastogne? No, no. No, I didn't have it till later. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, so you've broken through to Bastogne. And what happens after that then, Andy Lipscomb? I think it was either three or four days later we left and went on attack towards Germany. Pushing what was left back, what was left, pushing them back into Germany. And uh, it just so happens we went was on foot, wasn't driving half trucks, riding half trucks at that time. And how far did you uh, how far did you push them back, Andy? Well, not very far to start with, but uh, there was times that we'd make maybe twenty, thirty miles a day. Okay. And sometimes more than that. Okay. And I found that that I was talking about a while ago on December twenty third. Captain Trover of C of uh, C thirty seventh was killed. And they was running awful short on tanks, and they had only A company had nine tanks and one assault gun. B company had seven tanks and one assault gun. And C company, which was with us, had only five tanks left and one assault gun. Wow. How many tanks had you started with? Ordinarily 15. Gee. So losses were very high. Yeah. Okay. So you said that um, that Captain Trover they was killed. They were running short on tanks. And so what happened? Captain Dwight took his place in, and we kept going with what we had. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I tell you what, Andy. Let's go to break. When we come back, uh, we'll hear the. The, kind of the rest of the story on this. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project, and we will be right back with World War II veteran Andy Lipscomb. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. I'm thrilled to have on the line with me World War II veteran Andy Lipscomb. He served in the 37th Tank Battalion C Company, and we're, we've just been talking about um, Battle of the Bulge and Bastogne. Uh, Andy, what other battles were you involved in? You said I served in the tank battalion. I didn't serve in the tank battalion. I served in the 53rd Armored Infantry with the 37th Tank Battalion. Okay, thank you for clarifying that for me. (laughs) Okay. So what other battles were you involved in, Andy? What other? Yes. Uh... They issued you a European-African Middle Eastern theater ribbon and medal. Okay. But the battles, they they issued everybody that one, but then they named the battle separate. Okay. Which was Ardennes, in other words, the Battle of the Bulge. Okay. And the Rhineland, that was from there on into Germany. Okay. 
So yeah. And those are, the, and you have medals for the Ardennes and the Rhineland. Now, did you come? I ac- have that main medal with two battle stars on. Oh, got it. Okay. I'm still learning about all this, Andy. Uh, I uh, started not knowing her- much at all, and I'm learning a lot. So you had the two battle stars on that. Did you come across any concentration camps? Uh, the 4th Armored Division did, but I wasn't with them at the time. Did you hear anything about the concentration camps? I heard a lot about them because, um, I had friends that were still with the 4th Armored Division when they took Orendorf prison. That was the first prison liberated by the American forces. What did your friends tell you? uh, Of course, they told me a lot about it, about what happened. They said that 90, at least 90% of the people that was left in that camp died after it was liberated even. But there was just hundreds upon hundreds that was already dead, just piled up in piles around there. And General Patton ordered 15 citizens from Orndorf, the mayor and his wife and 13 other citizens, to come and view that camp. And they did. And the mayor... And his wife went home, and the mayor hung himself. Oh, my gosh. And his wife went to looking for him, and she found him hanging. So she just got a rope and hung herself also. But, uh, and I saw pictures of that. Not only just uh, pictures that guys took, but it's it's been on television lots of times on American Heroes Channel about that Orndorff prison, and uh, it was something. You know, Andy, it's hard for us to fathom that kind of evil. Were you surprised when you learned the truth about that? Well, I was, yes. And again, you're just a kid, just 18 years old. Yeah, but you see, there was just people, men that lived close here, that, uh, well, lived within 10 miles of Terra Alta. One was Jig Cliven Good. He's the one that drove my half track. Mm-hmm. Cockrell Smittle. Donald Castle, Jack Krogan, Ellis Martin. Ellis and I was big buddies. He was in the 704 tank destroyers. And Harry White. And then, of course, Mulvey that dug, dug us out of that basement. He died in January 2016. But all these guys that I talked to... They had a lot of information to tell me that that uh, 
I would never knew if if it hadn't been for them. I have the names. I don't know how many names I do have, but I have to count them. I have the names and addresses of, I'd say, possibly all the ones from West Virginia that served in the 4th Armored Division in the 53rd Infantry. Wow. Did you guys get together over the years? Used to. A lot of us did. We had a reunion every year. But the last reunion they had, there was only 15 members showed up with their guests, of course. Mm-hmm. But they they just decided to quit having the reunions. Okay, okay. But one reunion we went to, that was in, I believe, Charleston, South Carolina. There was over a 1,000 there at that reunion, and at the same time, there was another division there, and I don't know how many they had, and if you didn't get out early every morning and get your breakfast, you didn't find a place to sit down and eat. <laughs> wow. But they, they just died off. Yeah. Well, that's why it's so great to get to have uh, these interviews with with you, Andy Limscombe. Really appreciate that. Let's let's finish out here so that uh, you're you're moving into Germany, and so somewhere between there you get trench foot. So tell us what's going on there. Um, well, my feet went to hurting bad. Okay, and so you were and, evacuated, uh, when, then, huh? Go ahead. Went on sick call and. Uh, they said, we well, you getting drenched foot, and they just sent me to England, but they got mine early enough that it didn't damage my feet too much except the nerves in it. Okay. And what is the, what was the treatment? Well, I thought that, I thought the treatment really was the wrong way to do it. How so? It made me, it made me set over the on the edge of the bed with my feet down all day long. Huh. Well, I didn't have any trouble setting, but I couldn't see how that would do any good or they tell you to put your feet up. Uh-huh. But that wasn't the way they did it. Okay. Okay. And when you're in the hospital in uh, Britain... You hear that the war has ended, and you said that was quite a celebration. Did you Were you in the hospital for that, or were you able to partake of the celebration? Oh, yeah, I was able to walk in. Okay. When I was in the hospital, uh, uh, it was bad enough that I couldn't walk without it hurting something terrible. But it wasn't bad enough that they had to, was in danger of amputating or anything. Okay, how long was your recovery? Oh, I was there for, I don't know, you never know what, when, you didn't know what date was half the time. Yeah, I know. But it was sometime in March that I went in there and uh, got out, like I said, the day before the war ended. Okay. So you were in London then when you uh, got news that the war had ended? Right. Okay. And it was quite a celebration. What do you remember about that celebration, Andy? 
Oh, everybody is going crazy. Most of these, especially these English people, because they had been bombed a lot right. in London. And, uh, of course, they was happy that uh, that wasn't going to happen anymore. And London, there were areas of uh, London that were in shambles because of the bombings, correct? Oh, yeah, there was. Yeah. Okay. When did you get home? When did I get home? Yeah. I was discharged on the 10th of June, 46. Okay. When you got home, what was it like? What was your homecoming like? Uh, It was fine. (laughs) It was fine. Okay. Okay. So, so Andy, let's go ahead. (laughs) I rode a train into town and got into town at 4 o'clock in the morning. There wasn't any cabs running, so I had to walk home and carry my duffel bag full of whatever I brought back with me. <laughs> so what time so did I, you get home? I made it home, all right. Yeah. So you got, did you get home for breakfast? Yeah, I got breakfast. <laughs> were, did your family know you were coming? They knew about when I was coming, but not for sure. And was your mom really excited to see you? Yeah, and of course, uh, they didn't have any car when anybody, well, my brother would have been old enough to drive, but he didn't have a car. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so, Andy, anything else that you want to tell us about World War Two? Oh, I think that's nothing. Okay, I think that's a lot of good information. So I've got a couple of questions for you. What All would right. you What would you say to the young people of America today? Well, I'd say they should be thankful for their liberty that they have today. If Germany hadn't been defeated in World War II, it's hard to tell what they how they'd be living today. And it is important to stand up against evil and tyranny. And the yeah. other question then, Andy, is what goes through your mind when you see the American flag? <laughs> Well, when I see it, I think it's a wonderful symbol of America, and you should be proud of it. Absolutely. And then just the last question is, you came back uh, from the war, you know, what was the rest of your life like? Uh, Did you get married, children, what kind of business were you in? Well, did I get married, you say? Uh Uh-huh. I didn't get married until 1950. Okay. But I did get married and had one child and a girl, and she died at the age of 46 Hmm. with the same thing that killed Senator Kennedy and Senator McLean. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay. Brain cancer. Bio, biobiostoma multiforma, name of it. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. And what kind of business were you in? Well, I wasn't in business much. I had a service station. Okay. At one time, 
But at the same time, there was 12 other places in a little place like Terra Alta that sold gasoline, so that didn't work too good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I went to, went to work for an oil company here in town and worked for them for 42 years before I retired. Okay. I started out as a truck tractor and trailer driver, and then I became a salesman on the road for 40 years, and then I retired. Okay. Well, very good. So, Andy Lipscomb, this has just been a really, really terrific interview. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for your service. And uh, I'm grateful for Joe Conway, uh, our mutual friend that connected us. And uh, so, Andy, thank you again so much for joining uh, the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. All right. How did you get acquainted with Joe Conway? You know, uh, a friend of mine from the Netherlands introduced us. And then he has been just really great about introducing me to you and some of the other World War II veterans. From Netherlands? Uh-huh. What was his name? Ralph. It, Ralph Peters? Yeah, I got <laughs> I got some correspondence from him. Yes, and he's been a great connection as well. And when I was over in Normandy, he was uh, traveled with our group, and so Ralph is a good friend. Uh, how about Ronald Stassen? I don't know him. Well, he's from the Netherlands also. He's the one that sent me this information that that came off a computer, I know. Okay. Well, I'll get with Joe, and we'll get that information. So, Andy, we're, we're out of time. So thank you so much for joining me. Okay. Okay. You have a great day, and God bless you. Thank you. Okay. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project signing off. Uh, God bless you, and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.